0: Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. Oh, Mickey, you're so fine. You're so fine. You blow my mind because you listen to the Stick to Wrestling podcast every week. Hello, everyone. My name is John McAdam. Welcome to Stick to Wrestling, a podcast where if you give us 60 minutes, Perhaps indeed we'll give you a raw bone podcast. This is the only wicked good podcast out there. It is the people's podcast. It is the major league of professional wrestling podcast. Let's get some business out of the way. Um, if you want to join our Facebook group, there's a lot of good wrestling talk, almost 1,000 members. I try to put up results every day, some good questions. We had a good, really good conversation this week about Dave Meltzer and AEW, which led me. To watch aew for the first time in a couple of years, and it was actually really good. The wrestling was really good. They had two outstanding matches, so I think i 'm going to have that on my weekend dance card from now on or at least until football season and If you want to follow me on Twitter, just put in the name John McAdam and follow the guys who are fighting with chairs. I generally am good at retweeting other people 's good wrestling stuff it 's not a hundred percent wrestling i Explained to someone just a minute ago why the Mets cut George Foster in 1986, but it's mostly wrestling. And I also want to thank Mark Rowland for his, Mark Rockin' Roland for his contribution to Stick to Wrestling. If you would like to contribute to Stick to Wrestling, just PayPal me at prowrestlingarchives at gmail.com. No amount is too big and no amount is too small. If you just want to give me a $5 thank you, I will appreciate it. Before when the show starts, a couple of things. Number one, I am getting over like a tiny little cold. You can probably tell r- that right now. And I apologize for that. And secondly, and perhaps most importantly, I would like to follow Justin Timberlake's lead and apologize to both Britney Spears and Janet Jackson. Guys, I'm wicked. Sorry with that. Now, before I bring on my guest. I said last week I was disappointed because we had so many good questions from the mailbag, and some of the answers were a little bit detailed last week with Vincent Waller and myself that I didn't have a chance to get to all of them like that I really wanted to. So why not do part two of the mailbag issue? That's what we have coming up right now. And my guest, he's been on, it's been like a year since he's been on. He did a really good job. We had a lot of fun. Steve Crawford. Steve, thanks for coming on again.
1: Well, it's an honor to be here, and I, I feel the sensation of wicked goodness
0: tingling <laughs> all over my body. So, The wicked, tingling that. goodness. I love it. <laughs> there you go. All right. Yeah, well, we're excited to have you back. Thanks for taking the time. Absolutely. All right, let's jump into it. Uh, and Steve, I'm, glad, I'm going to let you, since you are the guest, I'm going to let you answer these questions first. Talk about whatever you want to talk about. Connor McGrath asked, What do you think happens if Ric Flair is able to jump to the WWF in 1998? How would he have fit in the peak of the Attitude Era?
1: You know, it's it's a really interesting question from kind of both sides of the equation. Because if you look at Flair in WCW in 1998, you know, that's when he wasn't getting along with Bischoff. He He had missed a show to watch his son in a wrestling tournament. Uh, they were suing him. He w- he wasn't there for a long period of time, so he was very unhappy in WCW in 1998. So I think he would have been very happy if he could have jumped to the World Wrestling Federation at that time, or if it was WWE at that time. But the problem, you know, you see on the, that side of the equation, is they're building new stars. You know that's when Steve Austin is starting to skyrocket, and, and The Rock is becoming a big star, and Mick Foley's becoming a big star. So you have these guys who have never been stars before. They're fresh. They're new. They're bringing something different to the table, and and you know where does Ric Flair fit into that mix? I I don't know. You know is he willing to put over Steve Austin at that point in his career? Is he willing to help The Rock on his way up? You know, I mean, Flair has so much charisma, so such a great performer. He's he's got to be in a featured spot, but it's it's real interesting to think about where he fits and fits in in the mix there, and 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 I'm not sure that I know. I don't know.
0: I have wondered that now for 23 years. Like you know, when everything was happening between Flair and Bischoff, and by the way, I, I've I've said a couple of times on this show, like I don't have this like great big hate thing for Eric Bischoff because. You know, he, I think I respected the the direction in which he took the business. Like he wanted it to be TV oriented, but then I, you know, you get back and you remember some of the stuff Bischoff did with flair. I mean, he suspended flair for no good reason. Flair had already asked for the night off and had gotten permission to see Reed wrestle. And then all of a sudden Eric wants him on the thunder taping in a minor role. It was like, you know, it was almost like Bischoff was starting a fight with this guy. And then Bischoff has this conversation with the locker room where he says he's going to sue Rick Flair into bankruptcy. He said he was going to wipe out Flair and his family's assets. He he, he has a locker room meeting with everyone where he says this about Rick. To me, I mean, if I'm running t- Time Warner Turner, whatever it is, I at least think about, and I might even go ahead and fire Eric Bischoff for that kind of behavior. And I was saying that at the time, you don't do stuff like that, but, as far as, you know, and, and another thing too, Rick definitely had made some enemies when he was in WCW as Booker in 90 and in 93. Like, I know Mick Foley came away not liking the guy at all. Steve Austin, if I recall correctly, asked Vince, not only, I know he asked Vince, don't bring this guy in. And he said, if you bring him in, I'm not working with him. And The Undertaker also did not want Flair in. And what those three, what do those three guys have in common? they worked with flair when he was the booker and they all came away with bad taste in their mouths. It wasn't just Paulie dangerously and Shane Douglas going off on the guy, but what would they have done with him? That's the thing. I, I don't know where Rick would have fit in my, the best thing I can come up with would be kind of to be a mentor of sorts for the rock. I mean, flair don't get me wrong. He was an asset in 1998, even though, yeah, he's approaching 50, He's still like you said, Steve, he still had charisma to the day he wrestled his last match or is supposed to be this last match against Shawn Michaels. The guy could go. I mean, that was a five star match. And then, of course, he made his comeback with TNA. But that's the thing. It's like, OK, he has talent. I mean, a guy has talent. You got you have to figure out a way to make it work. But he kind of would have been a, a square peg in a round hole in the WWF late 90s.
1: Yeah, and, and the other point you bring up is is he wouldn't have had any leverage at that point, right? You've got the two big companies. He wants to be on a national platform. If he leaves WCW, he's got to do what Vince tells him to do at that point. Yes. So, yeah, it, w- it would have been interesting to see, but it was probably best for all parties. It really didn't happen because WWE d- didn't need Flair in the mix at that point.
0: No, I mean, WWE at that point, point was talking about, you know, the next generation, you know, those are the old guys over in WCW. And then to bring in one of those old guys and feature them prominently would have been problematic. Yeah.
1: yeah. I, I agree. hundred percent.
0: All right. But Nick, excellent question by Connor. And I'm, I'm glad we got to tackle that. Brandon rice asks, we always hear about Hogan's series against Paul Orndorff being his most lucrative in the mid eighties. What series now, let me go back. I mean, Paul Orndorff was making like $10,000 a week in the summer okay. of 1986. That's how hot this program was. And very unexpectedly, in my opinion, because, you know, the turn was, was clumsily executed, if you ask me. But I guess at the end of the day, that doesn't matter. What series, in your eyes, was Hogan's w- worst in the mid-'80s? What do you think, Steve?
1: Well, you know, I, I
0: think if
1: you're looking at worst, there's there's two ways to look at this, right? There's There's the box office. And then there's just the quality of the of the matches. In terms of box office, I think everything worked in the mid '80s for Hulk Hogan. You know, yeah. uh, he was such a star that kind of transcended the business. That you know, he he brought a new demographic, in, and they were able to go into all those new markets. You know, based on Hulk Hogan. So I don't think anything didn't work from a business point of view. Uh, you know, if I'm buying a ticket, do I want to see you know Hulk Hogan and Big John Studd? Yeah, I might I might leave a little early on that one. Uh, <laughs> do I want to see him in Killer Con? Yeah, you know, probably not five star matches. He'd need somebody like Savage, like Orndorf, that's a really good worker, that can move really well, that can create a lot of excitement. You know, I don't I don't think seeing him against big slow guys is the best, you know. I, I, I understand, you know, the slaying the dragon storyline. But in terms of if I'm just a fan watching the product, those are not matches I want to see.
0: I saw a really good, really good, meaning not four or five star, but like a a solid three star match at the Boston Garden between Hulk Hogan and Killer Khan in 1987.
1: Yeah. And and those guys knew how to work. Right. And they knew how to work in big arenas. And I mean, Hogan, you can say he was not a good technical wrestler. But in terms of being a worker and understanding what to do and when to do it, I mean, he he, he knew what to do, and he knew what his fans wanted. He was very smart about how, how he approached his matches.
0: I, I, absolutely. I mean, Hulk Hogan, and I've mentioned this on the show before, he had to know that his number one priority was whatever you do, don't get hurt. Because you know we can't have Hulk Hogan not appearing at our major arenas. I mean, he had to know, look, you know, slow it down. No matter what you do, don't get hurt.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There was there was there was no upside in him taking any risk, none. So.
0: Now, my answer: What was the worst series? I'm I I think it did fine at the box office, and the first name that went through my head was The Earthquake. I was like, Whoop, he's 1990. We can't have him. I went with, and this is going to surprise some people. Let me explain. I went with Harley Race in 1987, and, I, and I'll tell you why. Number one, Harley Race at the time he was 44. And he looked older than 44. He was, j- he just didn't fit in body-wise with what the rest of the WWF was doing. Number two, and here's why I didn't like the series, okay? And I got to see it in Boston twice. Harley Race against Hulk Hogan. I mean, you know, legends, legends, you know? But here's how the match went around the horn. New York, Philadelphia, etc. Hulk Hogan has a match with Harley, Harley Race for the title. And Hogan basically destroys Harley Race. I mean, I I won't go as far as to say it was like a squash match. It felt like he was going out of his way to make people say, hey, Hulk Hogan, this, this is the former NWA champion, and Hulk Hogan dominates him. And the way they did it in the first match, Hogan gets a clean pin on Harley Race. Then Hogan is doing his posing routine, and maybe after two minutes of that, Harley Race sneak attacks him. And so now we've got an issue here. So Hogan challenges race to a Texas death match the next month. And Hogan once again, destroys Harley race, you know, Harley barely getting in any offense. And supposedly the, the matches were the worst of in all places, St. Louis, which is Harley's hometown.
1: Yeah. I mean, Harley at at that time in his career did not look like a guy that should be in a main event for a national promotion. He, He did not. Uh, He did not look incredible, you know, going against Hulk Hogan at that point in time, which is a sad thing to say when you look at the body of work of the two guys that are involved there. But you're right. That was bad product placement.
0: And, you know, at that time, even though he was in his mid 40s, race could still go. I mean, I saw some good Harley race matches in the WWF, but the wwf promoted physiques they didn't promote wrestling uh, as much as they did physiques and race just never had the physique
1: no no it, it was not a good it was you know the old nwa champions like dory funk and and you know even some guys that weren't champions like dick slater it just looked bad when they when they went you know the wwe and had the styles clash and did you know just didn't look like a fit for what that product was trying
0: to do No, and and Dory, I mean, when they brought him in and, you know, he was just uh, just a tag guy with Jimmy Jack Funk, not even with Terry Funk, with a faux funk, that that was a downer. But one thing I wanted to add to the Hogan question, Hogan didn't really have a series of matches until 1986 when we had the Orndorff turn. I mean, we had kind of a feud with roddy piper but they didn't go you know arena to arena when they came to boston twice but that was it i think yeah. you know it was like one week one month he'd be against uh dr d david schultz one month he'd be against john stud one month he'd be against brutus beefcake and you know jumbled around like you know he'd have different matches going you know, going from city to city
1: right right you know of course piper wouldn't wouldn't do the job for him so you know how much could you do with that
0: feud right yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, Roddy. I'm a big fan of Roddy's, but he got very selfish in the in the mid to late '80s. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, Christian Bodie asks if you could change the combatants or finish for any super card, what would it be? Steve, what do you think?
1: Well, I, you know, this one is is kind of easy for me when I when I look at you know the, the biggest disappointment in terms of of a finish. And I think it was WrestleMania 17. I don't know if I have that number correct, but it was, you know, Rock versus Austin where Austin has been the hottest superstar in the business, the biggest draw since the Hogan era. Everybody loves him as this anti-hero, badass rattlesnake. And, and then, you know, he turns heel to, to hug Vince McMahon and, and, and beat the Rock. And, and he has to do that to, to keep the title. I just think they killed the Steve Austin character. I think that was the absolute worst thing they could have done. This was a guy that, that people legitimately believed in. I remember I had just moved to uh, the Quad Cities in, in Davenport, Iowa, and I see an Illinois license plate that says ASTN 316. I mean, somebody's purchased huh. that license plate, right? That's not like when you bought the shelf. They've gone to the state of Illinois and gotten a personalized license plate. Yep. and he was a guy that people, I mean, who doesn't love that character? Who doesn't love somebody that stands up to the abusive boss? Right. Yeah. And and his work was so good. And and then it was just like, we're killing this character. And I just don't think he ever recovered
0: from that. No, I agree with you. And a lot of it is that, um, his health was going on the tubes. I mean, he, he had that injury against Owen Hart where Owen, geez, I was, I don't know if you've ever seen that bump from SummerSlam uh, 97, but I mean, he lawn darted Steve Austin into the into the mat. But I agree with you. Um, New Year's Eve, 1998. I'm up in Portland, Maine, and I buy a copy of Rolling Stone magazine because Steve Austin is on the cover. And I read the article and Austin's, you know, no kayfabing in this article. And he says, yeah, you know, the day will come where I'm the bad guy. And I'm like, Steve, no, 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 no. And I I said, I forgive me for repeating this. I've said this on the show before. There are some guys that you just don't turn. And Steve Austin was one of those guys that you just don't turn. And I I thought it was a huge mistake. I I agree with you. Huge mistake.
1: Yeah. Wrong place, wrong time to do that. If you were going to do it. And, and And I agree with you. It never should have been done.
0: No. And. I used to have – going back 20 years, I had a personalized Massachusetts license plate, V-O-L-F-A-N. That's how crazy I am. Um, <laughs> if, by the way, Tennessee – Well, like right when we were recording this, Tennessee had a bad blowout loss in LSU, and I'm like, oh, I've got to be in a good mood for this podcast. What, stop that. But anyway –
1: you, no, could probably, you know, give that that license plate away with if, if you're the person like 20 bucks to take it right now. So <laughs>
0: uh, if I had to change the I, I liked your answer, by the way, if you could change the finish because that WrestleMania X seven and you were right on that one, we are going to be talking about that. Uh, the 20th anniversary is coming up. We're going to have a special stick to wrestling on that in about six weeks, but. I mean, like I agree with you, it was a really bad decision. If I had to change the combatants for one match, it's kind of a tie. And they came one right after the other. Starcade eighty-five, we just had Dusty Rhodes versus Rick Flair the year before for Starcade eighty four. I think Dusty probably felt like A, okay, well, who else am I gonna put Flair out there against? And B, well, I can come up with a really good storyline where Rick turns heel and I'm going after revenge for a broken ankle. But to me, it just came across as, okay, we're doing this again. Number two came right after. Actually, my number two is my number one. King Kong Bundy at WrestleMania two. Hogan, I'd already seen Hulk Hogan wrestle King Kong Bundy and beat him. There had to be a better opponent. They put together a really, I think, what looked like a last-minute thrown-together angle on Saturday night's main event. This just I mean, talk about like the sandwich in the middle between WrestleMania one where you had Mr. T and WrestleMania three where you had Hogan Andre. I mean, this WrestleMania two is not a good show. And if you're going to ask me, okay, who would you have put in there against Hulk Hogan? My answer would have been Randy Savage. Like Randy had been in the WWF for less than a year. I don't know if that works for him or against him, but I think he would have been a way better opponent. Steve, your thoughts. Yeah,
1: I, I agree on both of those cases. You know, the 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 Rhodes-Flair match, I mean, they, they just went way too long with that. And, and then especially the way it was booked where Flair always looked weak. Yep. And then Bundy was not the guy to be in that spot. Like you say, he he had, he had been through all, all the territories. He was in a good spot in a lot of territories, but he wasn't a top-tier star. And you're right. It, it looked like a rush job, and it just it didn't have a lot of intrigue to it.
0: No, and on top of everything, and uh, instead of having Andre win the battle royal, I mean if they'd already done Andre versus Bundy, but I think they only did it in New York. And if you had a, an angle to back that up, there's a good number two match for for WrestleMania too. Not good in the ring, but people would have wanted to see Andre and Bundy.
1: Yeah, that would have been a good spectacle kind of match.
0: You're, you're right there. And the WWF was full of those. All right, AJ Montgomery asks, could Brad Armstrong have been a good replacement for Dennis Condry in the Midnight Express instead of Stan Lane. He would have had Cornette as his mouthpiece, and he was a better worker than Stan while working alongside Bobby Eaton. What do you think, Steve?
1: Well, you know, I'm the biggest Midnight Express mark in the world to begin with, so so this is a question that you know I would take very seriously when you're talking about changing the membership of the Midnight Express. I, I just don't think Brad would have been a good fit at that point. I started seeing him in the early 80s when he was teaming with his father, Bob Armstrong, and they were you know, pushed as a top tag team in Georgia. And you thought, yeah, this, this guy, Brad Armstrong, he's, he's going to be a huge star. You, know, you thought he was going to be a guy that, that was going to be a main event guy, and it, and it never happened. And certainly by 1987, it didn't happen. The business had changed a lot since the early 80s. And he was still this just kind of bland, well-mannered, baby-faced guy. And he had been seen too much on national scene, I think, at that level. You certainly couldn't have just put him in the slot like you did Stan Lane, because Stan Lane had not been seen on the national level, you know, unless you call the AWA, which I really don't consider that. But he'd been a top-tag team guy. People knew of him. And so it was an absolute fresh face. It freshened up the team. I think the only way, you know, you could have done Brad is I, I think it had to be slow. And I think he would have had to try to turn heel first. And then maybe Cornette says, "Ooh, I, I like this guy's new attitude and, and maybe he fits. But I, I just don't. I think Lane was much better overall in terms of the look and presentation of that team.
0: You know, I I mean, I, I 100% agree with you. I mean, here's what I have written down. Brad would have worked, but not as well as Stan Lane. And you're, you know, he's right. Uh, Brad Armstrong was a way better uh, worker than Stan Lane. Not that Stan was bad, but Brad was top shelf. AJ is also correct when he says that Brad would have, you know, it could have worked for Brad maybe if he had turned heel and had a guy like Jim Cornette as his manager. And he's just, you know, the quiet guy in the background, just like Bobby Eaton. But in a way, Brad was, he was almost too much like Dennis Condry. He was a good Southern guy. Not a lot of charisma, unfortunately. And, you know, people say, oh, Brad Armstrong was so underrated, you know, that no one used him right. Jim Cornette in Smoky Mountain Wrestling tried to make Brad Armstrong his number one guy, and it just didn't happen. It it didn't work and didn't look like it felt like it worked for no other reason than you just can't use Brad as your top guy.
1: Right. I mean, he was he was a solid ring technician, wasn't a good promo and didn't really have that baby face fire that connected with the audience. And and he wasn't really an innovator. I mean, he was a very good 1980s ring technician. But, you know, I, I don't go back and go think about all the great Brad Armstrong feuds or Brad Armstrong matches, even though I know he was very good in the ring. I think by 1987, trying to put him in a top money spot, which the Midnight Express were still at that level, I just don't think it works.
0: Right around the time, and I'm talking, I would say within 30 days of Dennis Condry quitting the team, they were having a series of matches with Ric Flair uh, going around against uh, Brad Armstrong. And the matches were said to be like really good, like four, four and a half stars. But they ran an angle to start this whole thing where Brad Armstrong is doing an interview and Ric Flair comes out and he, he shakes Brad Armstrong's hand. He goes, Brad, I believe this is my interview time. And Brad's like, no, it's my interview time, which is always like the worst start of a few. <laughs> right. And then the four horsemen came out and beat up Brad and Brad just felt out of his league. It felt like, okay, this is a boy trying to mess with the men, arn Anderson, Tully Blanchard, Lex Luger, etc. And the Ray Flair treated him, he just like blew Brad off like a small child, like get off the set kid. And Brad's just like, no, I won't. And then, it didn't draw, believe it or not.
1: You know, Brad, to me, is one of those guys who who stayed in the same spot in terms of where he was, you know, as a worker and, and promo and everything else. And he, he, he never got better.
0: And, and all these other people came in and surpassed him. Yeah. Yeah. And one other thing, too, that I mentioned, it was almost like bringing bringing it. And by the way, it sounds like we've been bagging on Brad Armstrong for the last 10 minutes. <laughs> both Both Steve and I are Brad fans. We like him. Just some guys have a ceiling, and I think a lot of people project Brad's ceiling above what it actually was. Um, But I, I have in my notes here, you know, Stan was different than Dennis Condry, way different. It was almost like we were merging the Fabulous Ones and the Midnight Express, and we came out with this, like, some greater than the parts thing. Well, you know, Stan was, like,
1: the coolest guy in the room, right? <laughs> Yeah, like the guy you want to be like, right? The, the the guy that's got this charisma, the guy that can pick up any woman in the bar, you know, uh, the guy that always looks good no matter what he wears, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, he just brought that coolness vibe to the team, and and it just gave them a completely different look than than Dennis Condry, who you know looked like an oil field worker or something. Yeah, <laughs> Condry looked like your typical old school Southern wrestler, where Lane looked like the next generation.
0: Yeah, and and that's why I've always thought that this Lane and Eaton version of the Midnight Express were the best ones. I mean, because Stan had that charisma. It was almost like as soon as they brought Stan in, it's like okay, we're we're no longer going to have like you know Dennis Condrey and Bobby Eaton wearing different sets of tights. Like now, the Midnight Express got serious about their lack of a better word, costuming. I mean, they had now matching boots and trunks and jackets, and they looked like an elite tag team.
1: I, I agree with you. I, I've, I've always preferred that version. I, th- I think Condry was a great ring psychologist. I think he was very smart, but I think just in terms of, of the presentation of how they looked and how they performed together, you know, they just, they could do a lot more, I think, with that team with Lane in there.
0: I completely agree with you, and it might have looked chaotic at the time, but I mean Dennis Condry, and I'm not saying this to be mean, he did Bobby and Jimmy a big favor by leaving and, and letting them have let Stan take his place.
1: Yeah, I, I think so. I think I think it was the time that, that they needed a new look
0: and uh I, I, I think that extended the life of, of that team. And you know, I'll I'll throw this in there too. I mean, one of g- wrestling's great mysteries, which you know, I'm, we're never going to have the answer to, is what the hell happened with Dennis Condry. I mean,
1: <laughs> no, there's there's been five or six different answers, and the last time last time I heard Jim Cornette address it, he said, "Well, I really can't tell you." <laughs> you know? uh, so so who knows? It's all <laughs> but, he said, but he also went on to say. Well, if he would have told us that at the time, none of us would have been mad. We would all understood it. But, yeah, it's the the unsolved mystery that will never be solved.
0: I mean, I I do believe, Jim, when he said it was as simple as, okay, we go to pick up Dennis. He's not there. We get to the arena. He's not there. We call him. He's not picking up. And, you know, two, three days later, it's like, okay, we got to do something here like that part. And that's easy enough to, to believe that, like the Dennis Condry part, like, okay, what? What's he thinking, not getting on that plane and getting back to work?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's a strange, you know, why did he ghost that position to, you know, later be in Alabama and the AWA, you know, making, yeah. you know, you'd have to think much less money. And, it, you know, it's just hard to fathom.
0: If the real answer was, I mean, I know their schedules were chaotic. And if he just couldn't take the schedule anymore and he was sick and tired of Charlotte. Like, I would believe that, but, I mean, and that's probably what happened. It's just, you know, just crazy, him abandoning those guys.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and they'd been working, you know, really hard for a long period of time, going back to to the Mid-South, so.
0: Yeah, it was like, Dennis, you know, he'd been wrestling since, I want to say, 74, and he finally made it. Finally made it to the point where, you know, he was making a lot of money in the NWA, And at some point, he just said he'd had enough. Anyway, not to belabor that point. Max Levy asked, what would have happened with WCW had Bill Watts been put in charge in late 1988 or early 1989 instead of Jim Hurd? Basically, what would have happened had they brought in Bill Watts right after the sale? Your thoughts, Steve?
1: Well, you know, think about all that we would have missed, right? I mean, can you imagine the world without, you know, the ding-dongs? <laughs> Can you imagine a world without the dynamic dudes and, and you know Ric Flair's Spartacus haircut, you know? I mean, think about what we would have all lost there. You know, I I don't know that it would've been much different than when Watts came in later. You know, I mean, Watts came in, he immediately destroyed the morale of the locker room. He didn't fit in in a corporate environment. The the intriguing thing to me is that uh Mark Calloway you know, was working in WCW at that time. Does does he jump ship? Do we have an Undertaker? Does does that character ever exist? Or is somebody else, you know, known as the Undertaker? That's interesting. Uh, yeah, that's that's something I was thinking about. But you know, it's it's just hard to see how, you know, it's still wrestling in a corporate environment. And that era was considered a very politically correct environment. And he's still not going to fit in there for very long. So, you know, I just don't see that working for, you know, I think he's there like he was later, maybe a year, and and he offends people with Bill Watts being Bill Watts and, and somebody else is brought in.
0: Here's where we differ a little bit, okay? okay? Bill Watts was brought in in 1992, and it's one of those weird things, like on the internet, people say, oh, I love 1992 WCW with Bill Watts. I don't doubt that's some people's preference, but in 1992, we were all looking at each other going, what is this garbage? It's just terrible. You know, so I don't think Watts did a good job at all in 92. Now, one reason is because he had been out of the business since 1987 and had, according to Watts, had not watched any wrestling since he sold Mid-South, the March, April, 1987. The business changed so much in that five-year period that Watts didn't have a chance. I mean, he was going back in time and that never ever works. Had they brought him in in 88 when he had all only been gone for like 18 months, I actually give him a fighting chance of putting out a good product, especially considering that I mean, I think at that point he still had a little bit of an extra grind against Vince McMahon and if you've got Watts coming out, you know, swinging at someone, look out! I mean, Watts had a brilliant wrestling mind. Well, in the mid eighties, in the late eighties.
1: Well, if he does that three years earlier, maybe we don't have Eric Watts, uh, you know, being in main events. Oh boy! <laughs> you know, maybe he isn't pushing his son to the moon, and you know, in a way that just looks completely, you know, like Mike Von Eric. So,
0: yeah. I think Eric went way beyond Mike Von Eric way I'm beyond sure. Dustin Rhodes. I mean, Steve, can you imagine let's say, Oh, well, let's say you live in, I don't know, Tulsa, Oklahoma, or New Orleans, Louisiana, and you go put on mid South wrestling and where you're seeing high school football footage of Bill Watts, kid. kid, yeah, yeah. that was a real thing. He's like, you know, He's he's like basically putting on a showcase of Eric Watts, you know, quarterback highlights, I guess, to impress college coaches across the country. And, and God bless Eric. You have to be really good to play to get a, just to get a scholarship to play football at the University of Louisville. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, putting his high school highlights on your wrestling show. <laughs> I mean, that's crazy.
1: <laughs> well, you know, Watts Watts was always about Watts, right? I mean, yeah. you know, the ego was always tremendous. And, and but of course, you know, he booked a lot of great wrestling, which we all loved. But I just don't know that he was ever, you know, he was used to being the boss. He was yeah. used to being the guy, and his word was it. And I just don't know that he would have ever succeeded reporting to some corporate guy who didn't understand the wrestling business. And you know who didn't understand the language that was used, and and you know how insane the wrestling business was at that point in time. Just you know, you had to have somebody that could live in both worlds, and he he just couldn't have done that.
0: No, and you're right. We're we're used to Bill Watts, just being a guy who no one ever said no to. You know, if he wants to buy a private plane and do whatever, that's what he's doing. You know, with Mid South's money. All right, but and by the way, I'm not going to twist everything around I, in 1989 and so we would ask me you know okay what does wcw need to do to fix everything my answer would have been hire bill watts
1: yeah and i and, think that was the common answer i think everybody felt that way at that time i think that was the but you know we didn't understand it's not just bill watts he's got a structure
0: yes no and i remember the day in 1992 when I kind of heard the rumor, well, there was always talk about Watts coming in, but now the, the talk had intensified. It was like, it sounds like they're bringing him in. And I, you know, someone told me, oh yeah, they hired Bill Watts. So I called Dave Melter. I call him at like one in the morning because he, he's in California and he's still up. And I'm like, hey, you know, did they hire Bill Watts? And Dave's exact words to me were, yep, and it's not going to work. I was just taken aback. I'm like, wait a minute. This you know, this guy was the has been the magic answer for almost five years now. Well, more like three years. And, you know, Dave said he talked to Watts and and Watts was lost in a time warp. And it turns out Dave was absolutely right.
1: Yeah, I I remember, I mean, he was very upfront about writing that in the observer. I was a subscriber, and and he said, you know, it's it's like bringing Barry Switzer back. You know, somebody's had that success and then they've been out of this situation and the times have changed and they haven't kept up with the times and, and that proved to be pretty on point.
0: I I cannot tell you what a bizarre hiring Barry Switzer was by the Dallas Cowboys. I have no analogy. <laughs> like switching out Jimmy Johnson to Barry Switzer. There's no analogy that that was just a wild time. All right. Just so everyone knows Jimmy Johnson and Barry Switzer hated each other's guts. And Jimmy Johnson gets fired by the Cowboys, and they bring in Barry, who ran the wishbone in Oklahoma, if you want to know how far back he was. All right. Bill Chase asks, let's say this is 1981. Ric Flair gets injured, and I guess this is a serious injury, before he's about to get the title from Dusty. Who does the NWA vote to become the man to carry the mantle in his place?
1: Okay. Uh, the first person that always comes to my mind when this when this particular hypothetical comes up is is, to me is Ted DiBiase. Mm -hmm. I think he was just one of the best all around workers in the business at that time. Could be babyface. He could heal. He was so smooth in the ring. He could have gone into every territory and made the local star look like a million bucks. I, I think that, you know, I think he's the guy who didn't get the shot. That they probably should have at some point. I think another guy that could have carried it during that area, uh, during that time timeframe, uh, Greg Valentine, mm-hmm. I think he had kind of the pedigree and, and the look to do that. And, you know, since I'm a Memphis guy, obviously I would have loved to have seen Jerry Lawler do that. He wouldn't have done it for the long-term. NWA probably would have never put him in that position, but it would have been really entertaining. <laughs> so those are some of the names I think of off the top of my head
0: you know I Ted DiBiase as far as I know had never been a heel until he turned in mid-south in 1982 but he came from a wrestling family his his mom and dad were both wrestlers so he understood the business and I think if you would ask me 1981 would Ted DiBiase work as a heel I would have guessed yes and he was my first choice my second choice was to simply leave the belt on Dusty Rhodes. I mean, Dusty was a draw everywhere he went. He'd proven in the past that he could be a heel, but his best role was a babyface. So you'd kind of have to change the way you did things a little bit. Like, you know, instead of having the NWA champion be a heel, he'd either be a tweener, or Dusty would have worked the way Jack Briscoe worked, you know, just as a subtle heel who does, you know, the little things, but he's still a babyface. You know, I mean, hey, Dusty was arguably the number one star in the in the business in nineteen eighty one. And Valentine was also my number three. Valentine, he gets knocked as being like Ric Flair Jr. or J V Ric Flair. But I think Rick Valentine could have been WWF or NWA champion. So and with Flair out of the way with this injury, we now don't have this problem. I also wanted to mention, too. By the time Ric Flair got the NWA title in 1981, I think he was he was overdue to get that. He was clearly the best worker in the business, one of if not the best talker in the business. He he had enough size. He had it all.
1: Right. Well, you know he was. But you know they were still going from that era where you had to be a legitimate tough guy and you had to worry about a double cross. Right. So he was kind of the first guy that didn't fit that mode for the nwa where they said no we're going to select the best performer but you're right he he certainly could have could have carried the belt sooner than he did he was he was so good
0: i mean i've heard more than once when he was younger rick flair was definitely not a pushover like you know i guess there's no pro wrestler you really want to mess with because these are big guys i mean you know rick had a legit amateur background so I think by 81, definitely the the double-cross era was over, and probably by 79, you could say that as well. Yeah, I think so. All right. Who are three current wrestlers who could have been NWA champion from 1975 through 1985? Steve, I'm going to ask you something. Do you watch the current product? (laughs) No, I have nothing on this.
1: I mean, I (laughs) am a blank tabula rasa, blank slate, right? I have nothing on who you know i don't watch the current product so i you know can't waste
0: people's time with making up opinions on something like this uh, just this week i tried to watch raw i you know and i gave it my best shot and it just didn't hook me it, it didn't uh, i watched maybe the first hour and i'm like okay there's no way i'm gonna get through three hours of this and yeah. you know i went in there with like you know hey this might be good you know I, and the way I've watched raw since its inception, even when I loved it in like eight, 98, 99, I would always have a fast forwarding method. And when you watch it on WWE network, which is what I was doing, there's no way to fast forward. So it was either sit there and deal with it or, you know, watch the whole thing or don't watch it. And I opted to not watch it. I do, however, watch the, they're not, Technically pay per views anymore, but the live events on WWE Network, like I, I almost never miss one, and those are good because mm-hmm. there's there's less folk there's, there's more focus on what's going on in the ring. And my pick for guys who could have been NWA champion, I have two: uh, Roman Reigns would have been great in any era. Drew McIntyre is really good, and he could have been great in, it, in any era. And three, I think he's still technically active. Um, I mean, I think the old school NWA would have pretty much done anything to get a Brock Lesnar in there.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, obviously, I know who Brock Lesnar and Roman Reigns are, and and certainly those guys would have been big money draws in any era, and could have certainly you know held the title and been credible
0: touring champions. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's funny. Uh, I'll talk a little, a tiny little bit about the the current product. Like, I thought AEW was so good and that their characters were really good. Like, they've got this female wrestler, Dr. Britt Baker, who blew my mind. She was, like, really good in the ring, and she had a great persona. Obviously, if she's smart enough to be a legit dentist, she can figure this out. But, I mean, wow, talk about, you know, being a really good pro wrestler part-time and being a dentist full-time. And and she's phenomenal. Yeah. You haven't seen her, I know.
1: Yeah, it's like, who was the physician that... Killed somebody and then became a wrestler, and the movie was based on him. And
0: oh, let me—I'm trying to think of his name. I know who you're talking about. <laughs> the Fugitive, or
1: the yes, oh. yeah, yeah. So, so we've had, and then, and then you had the interns, you know, wrestling in the '70s. So we have had this, you know, medical, you know, transition
0: to professional wrestling before. But yeah, it's, it's, of, an, course it's yeah. Shep, of course Lunos, Sam Of course Lunos.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the name I thought, but then I'm like, is that the right name? I don't know.
0: D- Dr. Ken ramey managing the interns. I've never actually seen footage of them, but I've seen you know their picture, and I always thought that was like the greatest thing, Dr. Ken and the interns. That could be a band for God's sake.
1: Yeah, it was just a little before my time in Memphis wrestling. I know they were you know main event stars in that territory, like 1970, but I would have been four and a half, five years old, so I wasn't really
0: up on the product. No, same here. I was looking at old magazines and seeing pictures of these guys, and. and The interns with their all-white wrestling uniforms were were phenomenal. I loved it. I thought it was great. I'm I'm sorry I missed it. All right, next question. I just went going back and forth from the internet. Oscar Villarreal asked, and I like this question, who is the best foreign menace not from Germany, Russia, or Japan?
1: Okay, so, I mean, first we got to go to Mongolia, right? Oh, that's right. Mongolian stomper. You know, from some stops in Canada and Tennessee and other places. Mm-hmm. But uh, we got to go there. You know, you had all those foreign hills from Samoa, right? Uh, well, that's the American
0: territory, though. But you know what? I'm, I'm going with them because they didn't act like they were from an American territory.
1: Well, you know, here here I went with a really kind of obscure team, though. You have the great Tio and Chief Tapu. Do you remember that tag team? The Manchurians. The Manchurians the Mongolians, and the New Guinea headhunters. Those guys traveled all over the world. They were from everywhere. (laughs) So so they were from more than Samoa. So you have those. And then, uh, you know, a great foreign heel, the giant, Jorge Gonzalez, right? Oh, that's right. I mean, he hurt my feelings every time I saw him step into a ring. It was (laughs) was brutal. So, yeah, I I don't know. That's just some thoughts off the top of my head on
0: I, I teed off on Mr. Gonzalez a couple of weeks ago, so I'm not going to leave him alone. My first question, would 1997 Bret Hart count in this?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Great Canadian heel, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, and to me, a foreign menace gets on TV and talks about how much he dislikes the United States, and, and no one was better at that than Bret. I, I mean, he dissed our health care system. How personal can you get? I mean... <laughs>
1: Every time I look at Blue Cross and Blue Shield, it's like, yeah, Bret Hart was right, you know?
0: And they don't have racism up in Canada. <laughs>
1: yeah, so That was news to me as someone who's yeah, been there. He was really, really good in that role at that time, that's for
0: sure. That was some awesome television every single week. I I, I couldn't believe at the time, I'm like, I like WWF way more than I like the NWA slash WCW And, you know, to me, that was an impossible thought in, like, 1988, 1989.
1: Right. Well, you know, it's kind of like, you know, Cornette has remarked that the uh, Bret Hart-Steve Austin match that made Steve Austin such a superstar was more like an NWA Starrcade main event than a WWE event. So, and they were still, you know, I mean, those two guys still came from the territorial system. They still understood old school wrestling. So, it was just... You know, it was a different time, but yeah, I'm with you. It was a great product during that era.
0: I mean, match of the decade of the 90s, in my opinion. Well, if you take out some of the if you U.S. match of the 90s, in my opinion. Steve, do you remember like 93, 94, the WWF brought in a guy named Ludwig Borga?
1: Yes, very quickly. Yeah, he was in and out pretty fast, but I certainly remember him.
0: I know they had big plans for this guy. I think his real name was Tony Hallmey. And when I saw him getting this mega push, I'm like, you guys are booking yourselves out of business. He's big and he looks menacing, but there's no charisma to this guy. And, you know, it, right. it was – WWF was, was so bad during that era.
1: He was the Magnificent Zulu of that time frame. Ooh.
0: <laughs> I recently <laughs> saw a match between Abdullah the, the Butcher, and he was calling himself the Magnificent Zulu. It was in Dallas in 1986, and it looks like Abby just really lit into this guy, and there was blood all over the place. It was, it was quite a, a step back from you know, the Von Erichs against Chris Adams and Gino Hernandez. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's, uh, yeah, those were brutal matches to watch in, in, in the worst way possible.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but ultimately, if I had to go with the best foreign menace, if Bret Hart does not count, I'm going with the Iron Sheik. Yeah. I thought about the iron Sheik, and then, you know,
1: I mean, he was almost like not a menace because he's a technical wrestler, right? I mean, yeah, he's, maybe. he's a trained, he's, he's like a technician is the technician a menace versus, you know, being a German heel. I, I don't know, but yeah, you you definitely could say, you know, as a foreign wrestler, he, he had tremendous success in the United States in spite
0: of himself. In spite of himself, <laughs> iron Sheik was a character. All right. Uh, Michael West asks in 1983 or 1984, what would have happened if the Southeastern NWA promoters had purchased Georgia championship wrestling, started a corporation that put their best talent on the 605 show and toured the big arenas. What are your thoughts on this, Steve? Well, it's it's
1: an interesting question. A lot of ways it's kind of like what happened with pro wrestling USA, but it's, it's before that and it's before, before Vince has really skyrocketed. So maybe you're, you know, you've got this national platform, you know, Georgia championship wrestling is is crashing and burning. So maybe you get Jerry Jarrett and Eddie Graham and mid Atlantic and who knows, you know, you get different people who are willing to say, yeah, I'm willing to send my stars to be on this national program. It it makes them look more important when they come back home. But the problem is who books it because you don't want your stars going out on national television and being a job guy, right?
0: And No, I mean, that, that's what messed up pro-wrestling USA. Or excuse me, it messed up Memphis when they were doing pro-wrestling USA.
1: Right, right, yeah. And then the other part of it is, okay, so if they're working this national platform off Georgia TV, where are they going? And they're missing house shows where your biggest stars, you're, you're dependent upon to draw money. So I, I, I think you ultimately still have the same problem you have with Pro Wrestling, that Pro Wrestling USA did. You don't have one concentrated owner who says, you know, this is my vision for this product. And everybody's got their personal stake that's more important to them. I, I just don't see how this works. I mean, it's, it's one of those things that's like, yeah, it's always a great idea to merge territories. And OK, look at what Crockett did. You know, he, he eventually bought florida and kansas city and uwf and he'd be better off if he hadn't done any of that
0: you know true i mean i remember when i first started getting tbs in 81 82 guys would come in from all over yeah. the place like you, you know jerry lawler was on georgia championship wrestling uh matt bourne and buddy rose flew themselves in so they could have national television time
1: yeah, so, you know,
0: and T- Tully blanchard yeah absolutely yeah but then, Oli kind of he he did stop doing that. I don't know why. He he had guys; there were guys willing to fly in on their own dime to get that national exposure. If it had happened, it would have been a lot better than what actually happened. There, there's one major problem here, and this is you know I read Oli's book maybe seven or eight years ago, and Oli made it clear from A to Z that he was not selling. I mean, he he it, it seemed like. He was willing to wait his way or fight his way through whatever problems Georgia was having and look at the long term and and hang in there. And then when Vince bought bought the promotion, uh, the majority got stock of the promotion only went to that, you know, six o'clock in the morning spot. So only wasn't giving up basically.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. The reality is none of the promoters. Jerry Jarrett didn't go into business for himself so he could work for early Anderson in Georgia. You know, and Ron Fuller didn't start two territories so he could send his talent to Georgia so they could make money there. And who and yeah. wasn't saying, well, I've got all these booking ideas. Let me give them to Ole Anderson in Georgia. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, yeah. so, so the idea that all these guys were going to come together, I mean, that's why Vince McMahon laughed when 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 Pro Wrestling USA he called them while they're having a meeting and said, you know, this is ridiculous. It'll never work. You know, he knew it was comical because, you know, there's just no way that was going to function it's sad that you know they kind of lost those years in in '83 and '84 when the NWA did have this national platform and it really wasn't being used correctly.
0: No, i agree with you 100%. I mean, you know, maybe a better what if? Let's say what if Ole Anderson was ready to sell at the right price and either Jim Crockett or Eddie Graham purchased that spot, merged the the two promotions and let's face it it wasn't like there was so much talent in both Florida and Georgia that you couldn't use both rosters and start from there. Like instead of, well, I mean, that's basically what happened. You know, Crockett got the spot in April 1985.
1: Right, right. And you know, it, it had to be under one under ownership umbrella. And, and if you merged it, you know, you you could have done something where, okay, maybe you, your big weekly towns become bi-weekly towns or something of that nature you can you can shuffle the talent in you can get fresh talent in different places but you know you can wh- what if that all day long but it just yeah. wasn't going to happen
0: uh, I mean the, the power of national cable you know couldn't be overstated I mean more and more homes were getting WTBS and instead of you know wrestling being on the UHF channel now it's on the you know it's on at 605 Eastern every Saturday on a station that everyone, not literally everyone, but pretty close to it, coast to coast gets.
1: Right. And USA Network with with Southwest Championship Wrestling and, you know, WWE. So it was just
0: evolving so quickly
1: all throughout the country.
0: Yeah, there was something about Southwest that seemed a little more minor league than the WWF on WOR or the NWA on TBS. There was just, it came across as this, I don't know. Just this cut rate promotion. I'm not saying I didn't like it. I'm saying that I, I knew Bob Sweeten wasn't really a big star. I thought that Tully Blanchard was going to be a a big fish in a small pond. You know, I, I knew Scott Casey as much as I like Scott, I knew he wasn't a big star.
1: So you didn't feel like like Amarillo and Lubbock just had that sort of cachet that New York City <laughs> and Boston do? I mean, come on. Come on. I will mean, take you to Lubbock sometime and you'll think, oh, my God, there is an end of the earth.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I've read Friday Night Lights. I know about Lubbock. <laughs> All right. Wow. We're running low on time. We've got room for a couple more questions. Christian Bodie asks, if Sting does not injure his knee at the Clash of the Champions, and what a turning moment that was. Talking about having the worst luck. It, and wins the NWA title at Wrestle War ninety. Does Flair end up in the WWF earlier? Steve, what do you think? I I don't
1: think so. I think I think Flair wanted to drop the title to Sting. You know, yeah. I think I think that you know ultimately what that hurt was was it hurt Sting on not getting the title at that time, and it hurt Luger because Flair wouldn't drop the belt to Luger, and Luger, you know, looked. Like he did in the WWE when he didn't win the title, he looked like this guy that should be champion and he's not. I think Flair was actually booking at the time that that Sting he was, after. and so he wanted to drop the belt to him. You know, it would have been you know interesting to see what happens from there. You know, obviously probably Flair wins the belt back at some point, uh, but no, I, I don't think that it would have any impact on on Flair's leaving or staying with the company.
0: No, I don't either. I think Flair, what he had in mind was to do. We talked about the Bret Hart Steve Austin match from WrestleMania that really established Steve Austin as a star. And they did some of the Bret Hart or the Bret Hart slash Steve Austin double turn on that night. And the next night on Raw, they pretty much finished it. And Hart had a lot to do with Steve Austin becoming a superstar. And eight years earlier, flair wanted to do that for sting he wanted to turn sting into the wcw's hulk hogan which i don't think was ever going to happen but i mean it definitely took a wrong turn on this night with sting getting injured yeah absolutely all right and you know one other thing i mean does flair end up in the wwf earlier i don't think so i think flair would have never left wcw well that that's hard to say i mean he was ready to leave in 88 i think and i've talked about this before when I think when they brought when they brought Dusty back my first thought was okay how long is Flair going to last here and the, the the answer was less than a year you know there was a lot of heat between Flair and Dusty in 88 and it it didn't go away magically in 91
1: right and, and you know when, and once you've been the booker and, and I mean I think you voluntarily stepped away from that still that that the writing's kind of on the wall when you leave that position that you're going to be moving on
0: Yeah, exactly. All right. Randy Smith asked, this isn't really a question, but I'd like to hear your thought, John Guest's thoughts on Dark Journey and if she had what it took to make it further than she did. What do you think, Steve?
1: No, (laughs) I I just don't think there was anything special about Dark Dark Journey. I think, you know, she was in a relationship with one of the boys, so he, he was in a position he could put her on camera. Yep, um, I was at the 2019 Charlotte Mid-Atlantic Convention. Dark Journey was there. I never heard anybody say, ooh, wow, Dark Journey's here. I got to get my picture with her. I talked to Dark, you know. Nobody said a word about it. I mean, she didn't have that charisma. She didn't have any sort of special look. She was with the right guy at the right time to get a role on television.
0: <laughs> I mean, that's that's a good way to put it. I don't think she was particularly good on the mic. I thought she was an absolutely stunning woman. I mean, you know, so that helps, and, and I think the fact that she was an African American helped, especially when she was a babyface, especially in Louisiana. But at the same time, when we're talking about going national, like she she was with Tully Blanchard in the Horsemen for maybe four or five weeks, and it the whole thing looked out of place. Now there are too many people on the screen. You got the four horsemen, JJ and Dark Journey, and it just never felt right. And it was dropped after, like I said, maybe after about a month.
1: Yeah, she she just added nothing. She added nothing to that units. I just I didn't see her as someone to me that added anything to the presentation in professional wrestling.
0: Yeah. And I can also say too, I mean, once they got rid of her mid eighty seven. I can't recall anyone saying world class should bring her in or the WWF should look into giving her a role. It was just like, you know, okay. She had that flash in the pan in the business for a little less than two years. And that was it. Yeah. I did like it when Michael Hayes had her in the ring and was flirting with her. And he, he's like, Hey, I'm married. Don't worry about it. I just want to see if you want to take a walk down bad streets. (laughs) I wish I had that kind of confidence to say that to a girl. (laughs) Well, none of us are Michael PSAs. Yeah. (laughs) There's only one Michael PS Hayes who has now become one of the most underrated guys in the history of wrestling. He was magic in the mid '80s. Yeah. Whatever happened to Frumpy? (laughs) We talked about Frumpy one day. Yeah. He was in the. he was on the show title. All right. Forget free Britney, find Frumpy. That's, that's our... <laughs> Randy should have been asking on, on, on my thoughts on Frumpy and if he had what it took to get further in the business. We are almost out of time, but I wanted to address John Horton's question. With the millions that despise today's flip-flop product, why doesn't someone start a promotion that actually has wrestling? Steve, before you answer that, I apologize to everyone whose question I just didn't have time to get to, but we we had so many really good ones. I want to thank everyone for submitting the questions. I'm sorry, Steve. Go ahead. I don't need to interrupt.
1: Okay. I'm a, I'm going to try something here, and I'm going to try it on behalf of my daughter, Tori Crawford, who's living in uh, Washington right now. But she'll get a kick out of this if I can pull this off. This is my old man Randy Savage Yeah, and you can't put the toothpaste back into the tube. It's done. So I mean you can't you can't move backwards. You can't move backwards in time. You can't you can't put Dory Funk and Jack Briscoe on for 45 minutes anymore. I mean it, it's evolved away from that. Do we like all like the way it's evolved? No, but but we don't have to. And if somebody has enough money to run that sort of promotion, God bless them, but it's not gonna make money in 2021.
0: Yeah, my answer would have been the same twenty or thirty years ago. You just can't go backwards. I mean, and John, please, John's a great guy. And I'm not saying you know anything to upset or offend him. You kind of do have that option. There's MMA, UFC, and everything else that falls under that umbrella. And if you want real wrestling, there is NCAA wrestling. I mean, that, you know, it's not my cup of tea. I like to watch it maybe once a year and that's it. But I mean it hasn't been real wrestling since in a hundred years. It hasn't been real wrestling. Right.
1: Right. And, and, you know, Dave Meltzer makes some good points when you talk about this stuff, you know, did Jerry Lawler really need to take down his strap to, you know, become Superman it's <laughs> stuff yeah. that we didn't question at all during the time. And we absolutely loved, I mean, it's, it's always been entertainment and showmanship and it's just, evolved to where it's much more than that than than we were brought up on but but that's okay
0: i remember being 12 or 13 years old and having an adult say to me i used to like it but it sucks now and this is 1976 or 1977 i mean it, it's always been like that luckily right. we like this guy didn't have access to whatever he was watching in i am guessing 40s 50s or 60s but we have access to a lot of the old stuff on YouTube or from you know personal trades or whatever. I mean, I can go into my DVD archives and relive you know some of 1981 Florida, some a lot of 1982 Georgia. So I am grateful to have that.
1: Absolutely. I mean, we just wish there were more of it. We wish a lot of that '70s stuff was available, but there's tons of great stuff out there for anybody that wants to look for
0: it. You know, I'll I'll close with this. And Steve, thank you for coming on. You've been a fantastic guest. It's been a great conversation. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. I love being on. Oh, love having you. In 2007, I worked with this girl, and she had uh, action figures of the Hardy Boys, right? Mm-hmm. So I walk up to her, and I, hey, how you doing? Wow, wrestling, yeah? And we have a brief conversation. And she got uh, the old WWF 24-7 service. And she's like, yeah, you know, I like to watch the old pay-per-view. She was a big fan of the hardies. I'm like, yeah, I like it that they have the stuff that was on every Saturday night. And she's like, oh, I'll check that out. And the next time I saw her, she wasn't impolite, but she was like, oh my God, you know, basically how could you watch that stuff? It's a guy's talking. They have a match where it's one sided. One person doesn't fight back. Then they have another interview. And then they have another one of these bad matches. And, you know, she, like I said, she was polite, but she was, unrestrained and being like, I don't know what you were watching, but yeah, I wouldn't miss a minute of that back in the eighties. So that's it. (laughs) Stick to wrestling has concluded. I want to thank our our promoter, our producer, Lou Kippelman for all the great work he does. I apologize. My voice is starting to go. It's been going little by little, the entire show. So thanks for hanging in there. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard podcast network. We'll see you next week. This concludes our podcast day.